Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let me go now to Charles Powell. He's a member of the House of Lords, joins us from our studios in London, where Tom Keene is uh, all week. And uh, 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 Lord Powell, let me just get you to react to, to what we've seen today. Of course, we got data on manufacturing, industrial production, uh, as well the trade gap uh, in the UK. Give me your reaction to what we've heard from the BOE today. Well, mine is not a particularly skilled reaction. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm unsurprised is the short answer. I didn't expect to see interest rates go up. I think a month before an election would be, in a way, quite sporting to try and do something like that, even though, of course, the Bank of England is independent. So, no, it sounds to me thoroughly sensible as a layman. Let me uh, let me get your, uh, your your sense of where things stand with Brexit at this point. Uh, we have negotiations continuing as we press ahead to the snap election on the 8th of June. Give us uh, your perspective on what campaigning is like at this point, the import uh, of this election that we face here uh, in less than a month's time now. Well, it's quite clear the reason that Mrs May called an election was to strengthen her hand in the negotiations over Brexit. Um, she had quite a narrow majority in the House of Commons, merely uh, 16 votes. And not everyone in the party will agree with everything she wants to do. So she needed a bigger majority. And so she's uh, staking all on getting that bigger majority. Um, We shall see four weeks today whether she succeeds. But the opinion polls seem to be fairly strongly in her favor. Uh, The BOE here reducing its growth forecast to 1.9% from 2%. Uh, for so long, after the way, in, in the wake of that um, Brexit vote, the, f- the first Brexit vote, uh, so many economists were telling us that the effects on the economy were m- more muted than many uh, expected. What's your sense of growth right now in, in the UK? Are we seeing a Brexit effect in a way that we didn't in the immediate aftermath of, of that vote? I'm not sure how much of it is really affected by Brexit. I think the growth rate was bound to sort of... <laughs> wobbled a little bit, but it hasn't wobbled greatly. I'd still be pretty optimistic about Britain in the run-up to Brexit, and I think also the European economies are doing better. Um, So I'm unexcited, let's put it like that. I'm untroubled, I'm unperturbed, I'm not uh, flapping about Brexit. How about the the corporate migration we've heard so much about uh, over these last couple of weeks? We've had uh, various banks outlining plans to send a few dozen, a few hundred employees elsewhere. Uh, How worried are you about the the prospects of that, of flight from the City of London? Well, I'm frankly not terribly worried. Um, I've never thought London was a great financial centre because we were in the European Union. I mean, we were a great financial centre, like New York's a great financial centre, because of what we are, because of the the policies, the economic life of this country, the traditions, the great experience of the city. Europe had very little to do with it. I think banks are taking some sensible precautionary measures, chuck a few guys over there in Europe to get the necessary licenses and so on, but don't don't talk now about relocating on a massive scale. It would be pointless. I mean, Frankfurt and Paris are not going to be world financial centres. They really are not. I mean, more people work in the square mile of the city of London than live in the whole of Frankfurt. So it's, it's all very relative. 
Lord Powell with us. Uh, Charles Powell, member of the House of Lords, former private secretary and advisor on foreign affairs and defense to Lady Thatcher here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Tom Keane with us now uh, from London. You're more proximate to Threadneedle Street, of course, than, than I. What's your reaction to the news that we got I, this I, morning, Tom? I'm taking British accent lessons yeah, here. I'm going to try to come back to New York with an appropriate and proper British accent. Uh, we are honored to have you with us, uh, Lord Powell, with your public service to the nation of long ago and far away. Does the United Kingdom speak to the leadership of Europe now as they spoke to the leadership 20 and 30 years ago? Is it the same dialogue and discourse, or will it be different? Well, many of the themes are the same, and of course in some areas not covered by the European Union, by which I mean particularly defense and security, the dialogue will go on unchanged. Obviously, over matters about our membership of the EU, it's a different sort of dialogue, and it's in a difficult phase. You would have read the reports of the famous dinner between Prime Minister Theresa May and the President of the European Commission, Mr Juncker, uh, talking about a sort of pretty much of a punch-up which went on at that. I think that's because we're in the phase before the real negotiations start, when both sides are sort of squaring up, they're strutting around the ring, beating their chests, flexing their muscles. Um, right. The serious stuff hasn't started yet. Did, did Jean Monnet do that? Did, I mean, I just find the cadence today totally different than what I studied of your era, sir. Well, Jean Monnet is even before my time, but uh, of course, I think the point I would make on that was there's an ideological belief in European Union amongst the original countries uh, of the European community. They really subscribe to a belief and a principle. Much of that has evaporated over the years. You can't get 28 countries thinking and feeling exactly the same as the original six. The general aim of closer European Union is officially there. It's written on all the documents. But I don't believe anyone really believes in it anymore as a practical outcome. Mm. Cooperation, yes. Maybe tighter cooperation between smaller groups of countries within the 27 or the 28, but not the full, the full works. That's just not going to happen. So in your estimation, then, has, has the experiment itself failed? No, I certainly don't think it's yeah. failed. Uh, obviously, one of the main principles, one of the main hopes for it was it, it would prevent any future war in, in the middle of Europe. And that, I think, we're further away from ever, yeah. thank God. I, I need to rip up the script. Am I allowed to do that, Please, David? Tom, yes. I mean, you know, I'm watching Bank of England here, and uh, I, I must, I'm trying to get it up here on my uh, Bloomberg terminal. There we go. It took me a while to type it the in. The keyboard is different there, Tom. Uh, Sterling is lower, 129.30 with a real drop. And this, of course, has to do with GDP forecasts and higher inflation as well. What's your first recollection of sterling to dollar? Was it four to one? Uh, yes, it was four to one. I was in Washington at the time because the U.S. Uh, came we talked out earlier about system. that. You were there for Watergate, and yes, and at the time that. when when the U.S. came out of of, of gold, as it were, the yeah. currency started to fluctuate. Nineteen seventy-three. Yeah, I was sitting there in Washington. Can you get this? Is your first radio announcement? I know the BBC. You can be four feet back from the mic. Here, you've got to be a little closer. But but how do you how do you adjust to the the generational sterling devaluation we've seen? I think people have become cynical about it over the years. We've had so many fluctuations in the UK. When you think back to the sort of inflation we experienced in the 1970s and early 1980s, people see this, by comparison, as a calm time, a steady time. Uh, I think the initial drop of sterling after, after the vote on Brexit was a 
bit of a shock, but not an mm. unexpected shock, really. People yeah. would have thought that would happen. And it has advantages, too. It's helped our export figures, really, quite considerably. So there's no sense of panic right. here or that Britain is losing control. Things are going pretty well. This has been wonderful. My next trip back to London, I'll drag David Gurr with me, <laughs> and we would love to speak to you and Daniel Jurgen together. That'd be great. I think yeah. that would be just a really special Well, I would event. enjoy that. I'm a great admirer right. of Daniel's, and yeah. it would be great to be He can't him. stand you, so I don't know if it'll work. <laughs> Lord Powell, thank you so much. Charles Powell with his public service during the major and Thatcher administrations. And, and Dr. Jurgen, if you're listening, we would love to make that make that happen. booking happen right now. We, we yeah. can do that right now. Joining us now, James Trevitas of Fletcher School, Tufts University. We speak to the Admiral about leadership differently than we would have spoken to him two or three or four days ago. Admiral Stavitas, I am reading Eric Larrabee's incredible one volume on FDR and his Oval Office. Somehow I can't fathom FDR keeping the American press out of a photo op uh, in the Oval Office. I mean, these are unique times. Your interpretation of what you've observed from the White House in the last two days. Well, I'm worried. I think uh, everyone is. Um, I'll sort of pin my hopes on H.R. Uh, McMaster, Lieutenant General McMaster, yep. who wrote an extraordinary book, Dereliction of Duty, the subject of which is the need to speak truth to power. It's about the Joint Chiefs during the Vietnam War and how they failed in their duty, dereliction of duty, to the President of the United States. Uh, it is important in these times that people are unafraid to walk into the Oval Office and tell the President when he is embarking on a dangerous course. And I think we are in those times. So I'm hopeful that H.R. McMaster's voice will be heard. Do those of a military tinge need to speak up? I mean, I understand the discourse of voices need to be heard. I mean, the movies would tell me that the Secretary of Defense wanders into the office and says, excuse me, sir. Does that happen? Absolutely. And that's okay. We have to respect the institutions. But that respect has to flow both ways, Tom. In other words, those who hold positions of power must respect them, and those who are subordinate must respect those in power. But there has to be confrontation behind closed doors so that our leaders do not take missteps. You mentioned H.R. McMaster, the the head of the NSC. There was more reporting this week from uh, Eli Lake, our colleague here at Bloomberg, among others, talking about a potential divide among the NSC again, uh, maybe some tension between the president and, and H.R. McMaster. What's your reaction to that? Uh, do, do you get the sense that that continues, and, and how worrisome is that to you? Uh, it's worrisome, but it is not, in my view, definitive. Um, from what I can source, H.R. Uh, McMaster continues to have the confidence of the president. He has regular interaction with him. I think his voice will be heard. Now, Let's face it, H.R. McMaster is the national security advisor. He's opining most emphatically on Russia, China, North Korea. These domestic issues, I think we have to turn to the chief of staff, to Reince Priebus, and hope that he is uh, speaking truth to power. What's the, the message from what we've seen unfold here over these last couple of days to, to other members of this administration, positions of power? Does it seem like those positions are more tenuous uh, somehow? Yes, you serve at the, the pleasure of the president, but uh, it seems like under this administration that can change rather quickly. 
it's pretty remarkable to see both the national security advisor fired as well as the FBI director in the first 112 days of an administration. So, sure, any job that you're holding in this administration must feel more tenuous today than it did four days ago. On the other hand, that is the nature of the system and the nature of the executive branch. The president has power and people serve at the pleasure of the president. When you hit a policy you cannot abide, you have the option to resign. Let's hope we don't get to that point where people are walking out the doors. Um, Admiral Stavides, can you bring Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals over to something as fractious as the Senate? I mean, they're above it all. They don't need to read Doris Kearns Goodwin or to Senator McConnell and the rest, do they? A team of rivals. And uh, I think that we have not seen that in quite a while, frankly. You'd have to go back in modern times, perhaps to the Reagan, Tip O'Neill, famous linkages. Uh, But on the Senate side, um, typically we've seen collegiality, but uh, over the decades. But now, Tom, you're absolutely right. We, we see the horses pulling in distinctly different directions. That's, to me, extremely worrisome because the Founding Fathers built the Senate to provide stability, to provide compromise, to rise above the petty issues. It's not happening. What did you make of, uh, of that moment yesterday when the Oval uh, Office door swung open and sitting therein was Henry Kissinger amid all of the conversation we've had about the parallels, right or wrong, to what happened in 1973? Talk about the optics that you're, you're witnessing here from this administration. Well, uh, really extraordinarily bad optics. I mean, you know, sort of what's happening can run on a scale from uh, Director Comey did a bad job. The president was within his rights to fire him uh, over to, hey, it's a conspiracy because Comey was investigating the Russians. What we, what we know for sure is the optics of this are hideous. And it's not just Kissinger and the link to Watergate. Who was the previous visitor in the White House? Lavrov, the, the foreign minister of Russia. So just badly mishandled. Um, just coincidentally, earlier in the day, I had a chance to be with former Secretary Kissinger. And I'll tell you, he is on his game. And he told me he would be talking to the president about China, North Korea, and the European Union and Russia. Uh, the president could not get better advice uh, based on everything I know and my interactions even earlier in the day with Dr. Kissinger. Uh, the, the president of Turkey is going to be in Washington next week. That's President uh, Erdogan. What, what do you make of the the, uh, the list of leaders with whom the president's been engaged? Of course, he's invited President Duterte of the Philippines to come to the White House uh, as well. When you, when you look at all the leaders around the world and then all the leaders that he's invited to the White House, what do you make of that list? It's, uh, it's kind of a mixed picture. Uh, I'm uh, extremely concerned about the idea that we would invite uh, Duterte of uh, the Philippines <clears throat> to the White House. He is, uh, he's not the kind of uh, character that we want sitting with the President of the United States. Um, I was also struck at the awkwardness of the interaction, for example, with Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. Um, so he's ranged the spectrum in terms of who he's inviting, who he's actually bringing in. Uh, the key is what are the personal relationships he's building, the most right. important of which will be with President Xi. Uh, one more quick question here. I'm going to get you on your day at Fletcher. What are the what are the personal relationships this president needs to uh, uh, develop with General Madison, with Mr. Tillerson? Uh, he's got to be in an absolute mind melt with the two of them. And here's some good news. The two of them, Tillerson and Mattis, are working very, very closely together, meeting frequently, and also with uh, Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly. That's a powerful trio. 
If he leans on them for advice, if he continues to reach outside to people like Dr. Kissinger, I think he'll be on a, a good course, at least on the international side of his portfolio. All right, great to speak with you as always there. Admiral James Stavridis heading up to the Dirksen Senate office building to testify before the Senate Armed Services Committee. He joined us on our phone lines. Tom, always great to hear his perspective, the dean of the Fletcher School yes. of Long Diplomacy at Tufts University. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. David Garay in New York, Tom Keene in London. As I fumble here on the Bloomberg typing KW1 commodity, trying hard to get my hard red winter wheat up on the Bloomberg. A man who can help me do that is one Dennis Gartman, of course, of the Gartman letter. Uh, let's, let's, let's get this out of the way first. Uh, how is hard red winter wheat doing, Dennis? It, it's boringly boring. It's doing very little, actually. Uh, the crop is doing fine. There, there were problems last week uh, with, with excess rain. But, you know, people, one might scoff about soft red or hard red winter wheat, but it is the stuff of which bread is made, and bread is still the staff of life. And it? dreams. So, bread and uh, dreams, yes. And, 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 and of dreams, absolutely. So it, the crop is doing fine. Thanks very much. Dennis, great to talk with you as always. We'll move on, move on now to other matters. We've been talking throughout the morning, all day yesterday, about what we've seen uh, in Washington, uh, the, the, uh, the, the firing of James Comey, the now former director of the FBI, and the fallout from that. And we've seen precious little response here in, in the market. You note in your, uh, in your letter yesterday that that might be news in and of itself. Why is that the case, do you think? Well, it, it is astonishing how everybody's talking about it. There are two things everybody's talking about. One, the Comey incident, and two, the lack of volatility utterly everywhere in all the markets. There is a, a total lack of volatility, and perhaps until – and you can write this down – volatility will return when it returns, and it won't return until a moment before then. It'll return when nobody cares any longer about it, when it has been – when it has ceased to be a topic of conversation. And probably the, the Comey incident – yeah. Now that people understand uh, that it was probably an ungentlemanly manner in which it was done, uh, one doesn't fire people uh, via note. One fires people across the desk. But other than that, it probably was understandable. So in the long scheme yeah. of things, not, not much effect, to be honest. Uh, a, a book that you and I love, Dennis Gartman, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. You were around when Edward Lefebvre wrote it. Um, Edwin Lefebvre wrote it. Here's a quote. <laughs> the desire for constant action, irrespective of underlying conditions, is responsible for many losses in Wall Street, even among the professionals. 
That's a quote from another time. What do you do to enjoy not losing money when it's this boring? Trying to stay upon the sidelines to the best of one's ability, trying, trying to buy breakouts to the upside, trying to sell breakouts to the downside, trying to find chart patterns that one finds interesting, that yeah. where the fundamentals are, are also uh, moving in the same direction. Yeah. But on balance, keeping one's powder dry, it, is, it really is astonishing how boring yeah. is the, the movement from the, up, from the lower left to the upper right, and it shall continue, Tom. It is always enjoying, enjoyable, Dennis Gartman, to do a panel or speech with one G. Kaminsky, Gary Kaminsky, with all of his work over the years on making and not losing money. And he brought up a Dennis Gartman concept. Explain to our audience anti-Martingale theory where you buy more of something when it begins to go up. You don't buy more of something and double down, et cetera, et cetera. Explain that to our audience. It, it's, it's a very simple concept. In, in life, if you do more of the things that are working and less of the things that are not, uh, as I say in speech after speech, gentlemen, if you take flowers to your girlfriend or your wife more often and you get lucky more often, take her flowers on a more consistent basis and be nicer. Do the oh, really? things that are working. Yes, it's true. Do the things that are working and try your best to do less of the things that are not. If you buy a stock at 15 and it goes to 20, the market's telling you that you're right. Do more of it. If you buy a stock at 15 and it goes to 10, the market, the collective wisdom and the stupidity of everyone trading is telling you that you're wrong. Why would you do more of something that has been going wrong? So it's a very simple notion. The difference, I think, between pros and amateurs is that pros will buy new highs. Amateurs are always trying to buy new lows. This is not a business. I've said this time and time again, and when I deviate from it, I err. This is not a business of buying low and selling higher. This is a business of buying high and selling higher. This is a business of being of shorting something that's already made a new low because in all likelihood it shall go even lower. Ask Mr. Ackman about the, the what, what happened as he continued to buy Valiant all the way down from, what, $300 a share, and he finally sold out at 10 Do more of that which is working, less of that which is not, and it will serve you very well. Dennis, we'll come back with you, but uh, I'm writing down here. I have to buy, buy flowers. What else should I be buying at this point? What's another, what's another opportunity <laughs> that we're, we're ignoring at this point? Buy, buy aluminum. Uh, buy ball bearings. Everybody laughs at me for the, for the concept of buying America's largest ball bearing manufacturer. But what's more incumbent in economic growth than, than the things that are absolutely important to machinery Machines can't run without ball bearings, and nobody's paying attention to it except America's largest ball bearing manufacturer keeps going to new highs. Let's get some economic analysis in real time here, Dennis. Uh, PPI there up 0.3 more than, than was surveyed. What's your read on the numbers we just got today? Those are rather impressive numbers. Clearly the Fed wants to see higher inflation, and it's finally getting it. Uh, I think what's even more important than the PPI number, which was, was well above expectations in the 25 uh, X food and energy for the year over year is very is well above expectations. But what's interesting is the the jobless claims number keeps plunging, to use a, a, a Tom's term, 
making newer and, and lower lows at 236,000. The jobs market is getting very tight out there. We simply don't have we, – we, we are running out of laborers on a very quick basis, and you're going to start to see labor rates begin to tip, tip up, I, I think, rather quickly. So in, the inflation numbers is, is really quite surprising. Uh, the, the, the claims number is even more surprising, and I think inflation is now on the, uh, on the horizon. Let's pivot back to London here. We also got inflation data, quarterly inflation data from the BOE uh, this morning. As Tom mentioned, we've seen diminution in, uh, in sterling this morning. Uh, Tom joking that you've gone, gone long and getting killed on it. What's your outlook for sterling, Dennis? You know, at, at, at 128.50, it's very hard for me to be bearish of sterling relative to the U.S. dollar. Uh, if if, if, if the, 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 the euro continues to weaken, and I think that the euro probably shall, it may drag sterling down. But I, quite honestly, I think that we've seen the worst uh, as far as the cable is concerned. So if you made me do something, if I had a, had a gun held to my head and I had to buy or sell cable right here, the sterling right here, I'd rather be a buyer than a seller. But you'd have to hold a gun to yeah. my head to make me do it. We've gotten quiet, Dennis Gartman, on dollar. We had a big leap a couple of years ago. And yeah, it's been just sort of training range bond, maybe not as range bond as oil, but there it is. Is is that the big surprise to come with the optimism Gartman has on the U.S. economy? By definition, you get a stronger dollar. I, I think the, the propensity shall be for the dollar to get, the, if not dramatically stronger, at least reasonably stronger over the course of the next several years. There, we, we will tighten monetary policy long before anybody else shall. Our economy is doing reasonably well, thank you, compared yeah. to most any other economy anywhere around the world. So on balance, all things being otherwise equal, Tom, the dollar has to go higher, not lower. Reading your most recent note here, Dennis, uh, you highlight euro Swissy in light of the, uh, the election in France. What are you looking for there in that cross? You know, what, what has been happening, that it's very fascinating that the Swiss National Bank is really almost the world's largest macro hedge fund. The Swiss National Bank has been trying its best and, and had not been succeeding until the election results of last week uh, in trying to keep the Swiss franc weak. Suddenly, since the election, uh, which puts to bed the risks of the euro collapsing and falling apart, uh, suddenly the Swiss franc has, has weakened rather dramatically relative to, to the euro. The Swiss have been selling Swiss francs, creating Swiss francs, buying euros, buying dollars, buying yen, and taking those currencies and buying stocks. They are now one of the world's largest shareholders, yeah. uh, rivaling, rivaling, <clears throat> rivaling the, the Norwegian uh, uh, right. uh, government fund, and it's astonishing. Nobody's paying much attention do to that you, fact. Do you assume, Mr. Gartman, do you assume that ends ugly? All these these things, things such as that, almost always end ugly. But for right now, they've got the wind at their back, at least for the last week. Let's give them credit for that. But, Tom, you and I have been around a long time. Things like that usually end in, an, in, a, in a very ugly fashion. When shall that happen? Your guess is as good as mine, but it probably shall. Let's spin here to the equities markets in the time we have left with you, just about uh, a minute left uh, with you, Dennis Gartman. Uh, how are you feeling about U.S. equities right now? Still a bull market, isn't it? Uh, as, as I've said for months and months, in a bull market, yeah. there are only three positions you can have. Really aggressively long, pleasantly long, or neutral. At this point, <laughs> yeah. you're supposed to be pleasantly long. It, it is a bull market, yeah. and every time I err on, on the side of selling it, I regret it. Let's get out in front of the Gartman letter tomorrow. We're going to have Howard Davidovitz join us here. Howard, it is an extraordinary morning for all of retail as they witness the further collapse of Macy's. It is a down 60% bull market 
from the 70s. It's down some 12% today. I don't have the chart right in front of me uh, right now. Dennis, retail, do you just get out of the way? Is that the Gartman advice? You have no choice, do you? It's Retail has been has been distraught and destroyed. Amazon has changed the environment completely. It is even putting pressure upon, of all places, Walmart. So uh, mom and yeah. pop may survive, but the, the middle-sized stores, it, it, is, it yeah. is a terrible and dangerous place. So if you have no choice, get out. Dennis, thank you so much. Dennis Gartman, the Gartman letter. We do not have the Gartman letter to ship to you by carrier uh, pigeon. We protect the copyright yeah. of all of our uh, guests uh, today. David Kerr in New York. I'm Tom Keen in London, England. And now joining us is someone who understands retail and understands real estate, whether it's River Ridge in Lynchburg, Virginia, Landmark in Alexandria, uh, Virginia. Good morning, 99.1 FM in Washington. Maybe it's out at Northgate, Durham, North Carolina. Or maybe Northgate it's Silver, Mall, well done. You know, thank you, Silver City <laughs> Galleria, Taunton, Massachusetts. Howard Davidovitz has been to them all. Howard, a workout like Macy's is about real estate, isn't it? Well, it's certainly a big part of it because the stores are too big. You also have to use the real estate to generate new capital to reinvigorate the business. They're doing that. Uh, they're in the process of monetizing a lot of it. Stores have to be downsized. Stores have to be closed. The core problem is that a number of years ago, Macy's doubled their size and bought the May Company. They both did about $16 billion at the time. It was a disastrous decision because they got second-rate stores in second-rate malls. Macy's at the time was number one and number two in every city. And they raced out and bought the, the May Company to double their size. When you look back on it, and of course I said it at the time everywhere, uh, it was a disastrous uh, decision. And uh, they did it, and now they're paying a price. You know, I, I, we were talking about the Herald Square store just a few moments ago. How much longer this company can hold on to that? What would it mean to Macy's, for Macy's, to have to get rid of that piece of real estate? Well, they're never going to get rid of that. That's what you just said is impossible and won't happen. Here's what will happen at Herald Square. It's the same thing they're doing in Chicago. It's the same thing they're doing in Minneapolis. The store is way too big. What they can do is monetize it by finding a way to have multi-use development, office, hotel, and that's exactly what they will do, and that's exactly what they So they'll end up, you can't, I mean, a million square foot store is nuts, and that's what they got. So they'll end up with a half a million square foot store or a 400,000 square foot store, which is plenty big, it's enormous. And that's what the, that's what they'll do at Herald Square. They'll raise a mountain of money, and they'll downsize the store. They will never get out of Herald Square. Are, are we still building malls anywhere in this country? Are there any malls under construction? What is the Mall of 2017? The Mall like? of 2017 doesn't exist because we're not building any enclosed malls, zero. We're at level zero. We have to close malls. We have to change malls. So there aren't any malls. We're dramatically overstored. We're dramatically overmalled. The whole thing doesn't make sense. There has to be a huge adjustment take place. How do we get here? How, how did it make sense, or how did it make sense on paper for a time? Well, it made 
sense because, number one, cheap money. That's what drives real estate. Number two, the crazy lunatic analysts who come on radio and television, the loons who come on and immediately announce, well, you got to grow at this rate. you got to do this and that, or we can't give you this multiple. So, of course, every retailer went completely bananas, dancing to their tune of growth, tremendous growth, because that's what you have to have, blah, 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 blah. That's how we ended up the most overstored country in the world by a factor of four, which is absolutely astounding, dancing to Wall Street's Looney Tunes and private equity crazy attitudes, and that's how we got here. Within this, Howard, is merchandising. I'm looking at the Macy's website. It says Trend Shop, our curated boutique of the latest arrivals fresh off the runway. Are they cool? The big No, they're not cool. And no department store is cool. They're too big to be cool. If you want to be cool, you've got to have a focused presentation in a specialty store. That's what's cool. So you can't have this gigantic edifice and be cool because the young people are not going to go there. So cool is out, but here's what's in. The biggest merchandising change Macy's is facing, and I, and, and they they've been in a they've been in a massive sleep for a ten years behind is off price. For ten years, off price has been the most powerful force in apparel in America. Nordstrom has doubled double the number of off-price Nordstrom rack right. stores than have Nordstrom Saks or Fifth. Macy's right. has been asleep and they've done nothing. Nothing. So okay. they finally woke up. Good. Howard, I'm looking at the Zara website. Granted, it's in the United Kingdom, folks from London and New York today. Zara doesn't sell price. They're selling the image, the trendy, the cool. Does price work anymore? Aren't we exhausted by 110% off? I don't think we're exhausted because if we were, TJ Maxx wouldn't be the leading apparel chain in the world. So I don't think we're exhausted by a good deal. I do think we're exhausted by over-promotion that are not real promotions, which traditional department stores like Macy's specialize in. Because after they give you the deal, TJ Maxx is still 25% less and all the shoppers know it. So... I think people like promotions that are real, not fake promotions. And Macy's and all the departments, as I'm not naming, I mean, all of them specialize in fake promotions, and those don't work. Uh, and Amazon is certainly going to shake and is shaking it all up. They'll do more apparel business than Macy's this year. Wow. So there's more apparel business than Macy's, mm. Amazon, and they just started. Yeah. David, ask a question so Howard will say it's in the crapper. Yeah, Howard, uh, we, we started off asking about all the walking that you have to do, all the geography that you have to cover. How about virtual geography? When you look at uh, online stores, aside from Amazon, who's doing online retailing well? Well, there's, there's, you, you, you want to know who's doing it well? The brick-and-mortar stores. If you look at Macy's penetration, they're doing 20% of their business online. Now, that's pretty damn good. Let's take the best brick-and-mortar store in the world and online. The best. 
Staples, 55% of their business online, $11.2 billion online. How would they do it? They're in the crapper. In uh, other words, it didn't help them because they still have all this real estate to deal with. So no matter how much online business you have, if you've still got all these costs and all this real estate, you're in the tank. So the brick-and-mortar stores, eight out of the ten largest online companies in America are brick-and-mortar yeah. stores, and they're still in the tank. And they will remain in the tank. Howard Davidovitz, thank you so much. And Carol Masser sends her kindest regards uh, to you uh, as uh, well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC.